If you would open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, we're starting a new sermon series this morning in the Gospel called Behold Your King. And uh, just to give you a sense, I'm going to pre preach 11 sermons from this. It's going to get us into the Sunday before uh, Thanksgiving, unless Jesus returns, which is, that's okay. Um, in between, during our weekly updates, Zach, myself, and others will be sending out meditations on the Gospel of Mark as well. So we're looking to do a nice, deep soak in the Gospel of Mark mornings, and you'll get a, uh, a devotion in your email on Thursdays as well. Hey, do we have any lovers of wildlife in Wisconsin in the room? Yes, double, double-handed amen. Maybe you're a hunter, maybe you like to hike, maybe you like to be out in the sticks. There's this thing called chronic wasting disease. Have you heard of that? It affects uh, the deer population in Wisconsin, and it can have devastating effects. Well, there's another kind of chronic wasting disease, but it's not affecting the deer population. It's affecting the population of the living God, the church, those who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's, it's chronic because it affects so many of God's people. Here's some symptoms. Rampant consumption of pornography. Regular infighting among God's family. The great de-churching and exodus of Christians from gathering weekly with God's people in His place. There is this ashamed silence surrounding the name of Jesus where followers of Jesus are afraid to speak His name. It's just a symptom of chronic wasting disease. Outright disinterest among God's people in Jesus. Check this out. Boredom with Jesus. It's symptomatic of this chronic wasting disease among Christians in His church. Now you might be wondering, well, what's the cause? Let me venture to you a single cause. A shockingly low view of Jesus among God's people. Shockingly. Low frequency of thought about Jesus. You just don't think about him that much. And then a low quality of thought. When you do think about Jesus, we have little thoughts of Jesus. And the result is this shockingly low view of him. This chronic wasting disease is affecting the church and it results in Christians who know they can be living for Jesus, but they're not. Here's the thing. When you actually behold your king in the pages of Scripture, in the pages of the Gospel of Mark, and you see him for who he is, Jesus is anything but boring. He's breathtaking in his wisdom. He's astonishing in his authority. He's overwhelming in his power. And he is surprising and unrelenting in his love. If you think that Jesus is irrelevant, he 
you don't have time for him. Or you think that Jesus is boring, you're not impressed by him. Or you just think that Jesus is strictly historical, he lived back 2,000 years ago, but you don't think he's alive today. You need to behold your king. You need to get a line of sight on the real and true Jesus. And the Gospel of Mark is going to confront us again and again with who Jesus truly is. The Son of God. The King of all. And there's only one response that's appropriate. To deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So, the passage that we're looking at this morning, Mark 1, 1 through 15, is not your typical introduction. Because Mark is going to make a claim about Jesus in the very first verse. And then he's going to support that from verses 2 through 15. And what I want to help you to see this morning is, brothers and sisters, you don't need less of Jesus. That leads to a low view of Jesus and chronic wasting disease. What you need is to behold your king and have an accurate view of who Jesus is, frequent and full. And as a result, thrive. Thrive for him. So, are you looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So in this passage, we have a claim in verse 1 and then five lines of support. Let's look at the claim. Verse 1, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you hear Christ and you hear that after the word Jesus, don't be thinking Jesus' last name. You've got to be thinking in terms of a title. That title, Christ, actually means anointed one or Messiah. It's, it's a kingly title. 
So right out of the gate, Mark is making a claim that this Jesus guy is a kind of a king, and we need to ask, what kind of king is he? And that's where the next title comes in. The Son of God. Do you know what kind of claim that is? Mark, the, the writer of this gospel, who is, who is a companion of the Apostle Peter, he, he's making a claim about the nature of Jesus the Christ. He's making a claim that, that Jesus is God, that he's divine, that, that by being related to God as his son, he is God. It's not your typical introduction into a biography. Anybody like reading historical biographies out there? I do. I'm reading one of John Adams right now, and David McCullough, who wrote it, the, the first sentence is not a claim that John Adams is God. That's unique. That's a big claim. And you know what you need to ask yourself? Is it true? Is Jesus really God? And, and what Mark is going to show us is that not only is Jesus totally God, but he's totally man. And we've got to be asking the question, is it true? Because if it's not true, this is no gospel. This is not good news. This is bad news, because it's fake news. And, and, and if it's not true, if Jesus isn't God, then disregard the whole Christianity thing. It's not worth your time. But if it is true, if this claim that Jesus is a God king, the God king, totally God, totally man, and, and what we're going to see is that by the end of his life, he gives his life as a ransom for many by dying on the cross and three days later is raised from the dead, meaning he's alive right now. If that's all true, then Jesus is one of a kind. And it's going to require something of you. It calls for a decision. If Jesus is the God King, you've got a decision in front of you. Option one, either deny Jesus and live for yourself, or deny yourself and live for Jesus. Those are the two options. Mark begins this biography with the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God. And that's what makes this good news. Because if Jesus is the God King who died for you and me and is raised and is alive today, He's offering us salvation now. So let's see how Mark supports his claim in verses 2 through 15. Let's see what he does. You ready? Support number one is in verses 2 and 3. Old Testament evidence supporting the claim. Did you notice the first four words of verse 2? As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Mark begins his case to show that Jesus is the Son of God by pointing to the Old Testament. And he name drops Isaiah. The original recipients of the Gospel of Mark were most likely Gentile Christians living in Rome. And unlike the Gospel of Matthew, which is just packed full of Old Testament references, explicit, the Gospel of Mark is a little bit more sparse with Old Testament references. 
because Mark knows his audience. These are Gentile Christians. And yet, nevertheless, Mark begins with the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is for both Jews and non-Jews. Because the Old Testament, among all that it does, it points to Jesus, the Savior of all. So let's look at this, two and three. Mark actually is referencing two Old Testament prophets. The first one is Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Notice that he talks about a messenger, a prophet is going to come. And the second thing he references is it's in the second person. He'll go before your face who will prepare your way. In the original of Malachi, it's actually God speaking of himself. This messenger is going to go before me. And so what I just want you to see in this Malachi quote are two things. There's an Old Testament prophecy speaking of a coming prophet who's coming before the coming Yahweh, God. You see that? Well, the second quote in verse 3 is actually from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And again, we see two things. The coming of a prophet, the voice in the wilderness, and the coming of Yahweh, God. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So these are two different Old Testament passages, but they have common themes. They're both pointing to a coming coming prophet who's going to prepare the way for the coming Lord God. And by the way, the way of Yahweh is going to be modeled by Jesus in an upside-down kind of way. Because the way of Yahweh that Jesus is going to fulfill is going to go the way of the cross. Mark is saying that these two passages prophesying the coming of a prophet and prophesying the coming of Yahweh, he's going to show us that they've been fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus the Christ. John being the prophet, Jesus being Yahweh. So this first line of supporting evidence from from the Old Testament, from Malachi and Isaiah, is God is coming. He's going to be preceded by a prophet. And Mark's going to be very clear that it's Jesus. But there's more evidence. Look at verses 4 through 8. This is the second line of supporting evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. JTB! John the Baptist. So there's just been this prophecy, Malachi and Isaiah, and there's this prophet coming, this voice in the wilderness. Look at verse 4. John appeared. This is Mark making a connection, saying that this messenger, that this voice of the wilderness is John the Baptist. Look where he's at. Baptizing in the wilderness. And look what he's doing. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know what that is? That's preparing the way of the Lord. 
That is turning over soil, helping people come to terms with their sinfulness, getting them ready, anticipating that this Lord who is coming is going to do something about that. Showing their need for purification. In verse 5, look who's going out to him. All the country of Judea, all the country folk, and all the Jerusalem, literally it's Jerusalemites, the city folk, all the country folk and all the city folk are going out to see JTB. He's causing a stir. It's been 400 years of silence since Malachi was written, and now God is at work. There's a prophet on the scene. People are flocking to him. And did you notice that when they go to him, they're baptized by them, they are confessing their sins as they go into the water, preparing the way of the Lord. You can't help but what he's wearing. Help notice that. Camel's hair, leather belt, what's up with that? For those people who are familiar with the Old Testament, that, that would be Elijah-esque. This is a prophet. And you can't help but notice what he's eating, right? Locusts, wild honey. We don't know if he's dipping the locusts in the wild honey. If That's a pairing of some sort. We don't know that. But what we do know, it's God providing for his prophet. This is a prophet. This is the messenger. This is the voice in the wilderness. And he's declaring something. And that's in verses 7 and 8. Check out what he has to say. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. Now, he doesn't say right there if it's mightier in degree or mightier in kind. But what he does say is at the end of verse 7, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Everybody reading this would know who who Mark is, is, or John the Baptist is referring to. In that time, in that era, the the least of all servants in a household had the job of taking people's sandals off after they came in from outside. It would have been disgusting. It was the least of all jobs. And what John the Baptist is saying is, hey, there's a guy coming after me, and I'm not worthy to be the least of his servants. And then in verse 8, He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now we're talking about what kind of might. The the difference is a difference not of degree, of kind. What what John the Baptist Baptist baptizes with is water. It's right there. What this one coming will baptize with is the Holy Spirit. Does, Does anybody know just off the top of your mind in the Old Testament, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Who pours out the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? It's God. Only God pours out the Holy Spirit. Only God anoints people with the Holy Spirit. And so what John the Baptist is saying right here is this. The guy that's coming after me is God. In his sermon on Pentecost, Peter, he's he's explaining to the people in Jerusalem that have just experienced this unbelievable outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of now people speaking in different languages and, and people are giving glory to God in their native tongues. 
And in, in Acts 2.33, Peter says, it's the risen King Jesus who has just poured out the Holy Spirit on this day, on this church in Pentecost. What you're seeing is the doing of Jesus because he's God. So the second line of evidence supporting the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, it's, it's John the Baptist saying, hey, there's come, someone coming after me that's mightier than me. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and only God does that. But there is more evidence. There's more evidence. In verses 9 through 11, there is triune evidence. In verse 9, Jesus comes on the scene for the first time in the Gospel of Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That's his hometown. That's where he grew up. And Jesus joins all these people flocking to John the Baptist. And Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Now you may be asking, whoa, whoa, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Isn't that baptism a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? I thought Jesus was sinless. Why would he need that? Well, there's a couple reasons for it, one of which is this. The baptism is functioning different for Jesus than for everybody else. Let me show you. So Jesus is baptized, and when he comes up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. So when, he, when someone sees the heavens torn open in your Bible, that means there is a revelation of God that's just about to happen. Apparently, nobody else who went out to John the Baptist to be baptized, nobody else. It didn't happen to anybody else. And then what we see is the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. A real manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. It was to empower him for the public ministry that he is about to undertake. So there's been this revelation from heaven, and now the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven to empower Jesus for his public ministry. It's another preparing the way of the Lord. So right now, if you're counting with me, we've got two members of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, we have the first person of the Trinity. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. To Jesus, for everyone to hear, God the Father says, you are my beloved Son. You can't get a better endorsement, a better affirmation, a better confession that Jesus is fully God than from God the Father. Saying that you are my beloved son. Warm relationship. The Father is declaring the divine sonship of Jesus. That he in fact is the Son of God. With you, I am well pleased. Everybody else at the Jordan is confessing their sin as they're being baptized. Jesus comes up out of the water and God the Father confesses Him as God the Son with whom I'm well pleased. He's not sinned once. 
This is quite the endorsement. We've got a Trinity sighting at the very outset of the Gospel of Mark. And what it is, is an ordination ceremony for the start of Jesus' public ministry. That's how His baptism is functioning. It's also modeling for all followers of Jesus that we too need to be baptized. This is the third line of evidence supporting that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God. God the Father verbally affirms that. We'll see it again in Mark chapter 9, transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the God King. Are you beholding your King? Are you seeing this? There's more evidence. In verses 12 through 13, we have satanic support. Now that might sound a little strange because in 12, verses 12 and 13, Jesus is, is tempted by Satan in the wilderness and the result is actually evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. So in verse 12, the Spirit who has just been poured out on Jesus to empower Him for ministry leads Jesus, drives Him further into the wilderness, and He's going to be there for 40 days. Now, when you hear wilderness in the number 40, it should start ringing bells. Elijah, Mount Horeb, 40 days and nights. Moses, Mount Sinai, 40 days, 40 nights. Moses in the wilderness of Midian, 40 years. Israel, 40 years in the wilderness being tested Wilderness, 40, means testing ground, proving ground. And that's what's going on. Jesus is tested, tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness. And if you want a close-up view of what actually happens, turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Look at it a different time. But what you see Jesus doing is Jesus prevailing against the temptations of Satan by quoting God's word, by living according to God's word. Now, why was Jesus tempted by Satan? Why did that happen? Well, as fully God and fully man, Jesus did in those 40 days what we're unable to do for 40 minutes. And that is not sin. Which means that Jesus, the second Adam did what the first Adam failed to do. Overcome Satan by faith in God's word. He's reversing the cursing. It shows us that Jesus, the Son of God, is greater than God's arch enemy, Satan. In Mark 3, Jesus goes on to talk about Satan as a strong man who Jesus will bind and plunder his house. Which means this, if you're a Christian in the room, if, if you confess Jesus as your Lord and King, it means that the Son of God has plundered you from Satan's house. You belong to him now. Behold your king, he's greater than Satan. But there's more. 
in verses 14 and 15, we see Jesus himself speak. It's, it's the, the, the fifth line of evidence comes from Jesus' lips himself. In verse 14, we learn that John the Baptist has been arrested. He spoke truth to power. And he confronted Herod in his sin and got arrested for it. But with John the Baptist leaving the stage, Jesus, the King, the Son of God, takes center stage. And it's spotlighted. It's the start of his public ministry. What, what you're going to see in the Gospel of Mark are two big moves in the Gospel. It's all to show you that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first, first half, chapter 1 through Chapter 8, verse 26, is Jesus' ministry around Capernaum. And then in 827, all the way through 168, it's Jesus' ministry around Jerusalem. And what we're going to see again and again is more and more evidence of who Jesus is. Behold your king. And look what Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. And when you read that and hear that, you should be asking, what time is fulfilled? What time are you talking about, Jesus? And for us, we don't need to go outside of the context of this passage, because we've been already been told. Remember at the beginning, Malachi and Isaiah? There's a time coming when this messenger is going to come before the Lord, and then there's this voice crying out in the, in the wilderness who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. There, there's a time coming, and what Jesus is saying here is, the time has come. The time is fulfilled. I'm here. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, what he's saying is, my time has come. I'm the Son of God. And he brings with him his kingdom. And the kingdom of God is at hand. That, that little phrase, is at hand, may sound a little odd to us. It just means near or present. The kingdom of God is here. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here, what he's saying is this, because I'm here, the saving reign of God is here. So when you hear that phrase, kingdom of God, don't be thinking geographically. What you need to be thinking about is more in terms of relationships. To be in the kingdom of God is to be in right relationship with God. It's, it's another way of talking about our salvation, of being saved. And the only way to enter the kingdom of God is through King Jesus. In order to be in the kingdom, you must know and bow to the king. So what Jesus is saying here in 14 and 15, is that the time of which Malachi and Isaiah spoke has come to pass. John the Baptist is my messenger, and Jesus is essentially saying, I am God, the Lord, the Son of God, and I have brought with me salvation. This is not your typical introduction, is it? It culminates in Jesus proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, the plan God's plan for the fullness of time. Behold your king, gang. So what's the point of this? What's the point of these 15 verses? 
It's just to show you that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. It's, it's for you to behold your King. The Old Testament supports that Jesus is the Son of God. Malachi, Isaiah. John the Baptist supports that Jesus is the Son of God. There's one mightier coming who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. There are two members of the Trinity who support that Jesus is the Son of God. God the Father himself saying, this is my beloved Son. Jesus overcoming Satan supports that he's the Son of God. And Jesus himself claiming to be the fulfillment of the coming of Yahweh. He is the Son of God. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of God? For two reasons. First is to accomplish our salvation. We needed God to die in our place to save us. That's why. No one but God in the flesh could accomplish our salvation. And he, in his upside down kingdom kind of way, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, his divine life, as a ransom for many. The second reason why Jesus, why it matters is this. He has the authority to call you, to call me, to deny ourselves, to follow him. He's the God King. He can do that. He has every right to do that. So behold your king. So the question now becomes, of how do you respond to him? Well, he tells us in verse 15 how to respond to him. In verse 15, there's a little but important word that, that gets left out in English. It's, it's the word, you can translate it, because. So, so if you're going to translate verse 15 in a, in a wooden sense, it would read, read like this. Because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It actually strengthens what Jesus is saying. Because the time is fulfilled, because I'm here and I've brought with me salvation, repent and believe the gospel. The good news, this gospel, is that Jesus is God's king who has come and offers entrance into the saving reign of God. And the way that you enter that is by repenting and believing. To repent means to change your mind about something. It's, it's to, to turn away from trusting what you were trusting in in order for you to find the good life. And, and believing means after you turn, believing is what you're now trusting in. If you're a non-Christian in the room, you are now being confronted with the Jesus of the Bible. Not a Jesus of your own making. Not a Jesus of somebody else's making. This is Jesus on Jesus' terms. Behold your king. And come into his kingdom. In order to do that, you will need to repent and believe. You may be saying, well, repent of what? 
Well, to turn away from living independently from him. You'll need to turn your back on living as if Jesus isn't the risen and reigning king of all. You'll need to repeatedly stop enthroning yourself as king or queen of your life. That way of being will need to come to an end and become a distant memory. That's what it means to repent. And the belief in the good news is believing that Jesus is your king. To treasure him above all, to obey him in all that he commands, to magnify his name among all people, and to belong to him with all who repent and believe in him. This is what the Bible gets at when it's talking about conversion. It's that initial repentance and belief in Jesus when you recognize your need for him. It's that initial saying, I will no longer align myself. I will no longer pledge allegiance to myself and to my sin, but now I pledge allegiance to my King Jesus. At that moment is when a sinner is justified by the grace of God. So the question is, if you're a non-Christian in the room, have you converted to Christ? Have you made Jesus, have you submitted yourself to his kingship? Now, it's legit if you're like, hey, I need some more information, more time. You're at the right place. Keep on coming Sunday after Sunday. You're going to behold your king. And he wants to be your king. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, what Jesus says in verse 15 actually applies to you too. Because if you want to hear it read woodenly again, it reads like this. Because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, keep repenting and keep believing the gospel. Those verbs, repent and believe, they are present tense commands, which means we're to keep repenting, we're to Keep believing in the gospel. Where conversion is the initial repentance and belief, discipleship to Jesus is the ongoing repenting and the ongoing believing in Jesus. So in other words, once you became a Christian, you must continue to repeatedly repent of living independently of Jesus and to continually believe that Jesus is your king and bow your knee to him. It's Another way of talking about sanctification, of saying no to sin and saying yes to God. So the question is, Christian, having come under the reign of God, do you need to repent of anything? Do you, do you need to exercise faith in Jesus and you're not? Maybe we come back to the chronic wasting disease. Brother, sister in Christ, it, are you seeing some symptoms in your life? Do, do you need to repent of your intake of pornography? Do, do you need to repent of your grumbling, complaining? That you, do you need to repent that you're bored with Jesus? You need to repent of that, of low frequency, low quality. Repent of that. Say, forget about it. And you behold your king. In its place, 
you believe the good news of Jesus, you take long, lingering looks of longing at Jesus. And you confess him as your king daily, again and again and again. This morning we've seen Mark's claim that Jesus is the king, the Christ, the son of God. And then he supports that with five lines of evidence. Behold your king. Let's say no to chronic wasting disease. Let's say no to a low view of Jesus. And let's say yes to our King Jesus and experience the good life, the life of thriving. And let's face whatever comes because we're living for him. Let's behold our King together, brothers and sisters, and be changed. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you, by your spirit, help us to see our King in greater and greater clarity in greater and greater grandeur, and as a result, that we live changed lives for His name's sake. Amen.